0: Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello,
1: everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. We are recording this live on May 19th, 2021. Uh, I'm your host, Nick Rome, and I'm joined today by Aaron Ritchie. How are you? Good. How are you, Nick? Good. Great to have you on the show again. Blake is out this week. He'll be back next week. Um, Yeah, so let's just jump right into it. Uh, We're getting into Human Factors news. Yes, this is the part of the show all about Human Factors News. Uh, This is where we talk about everything related to the field of human factors. This could be anything related to uh, medical, privacy, security, whatever it is, as long as it relates to the field of human factors. It's fair game for us to sit here and talk about. Uh, What do we got up first this week, Aaron?
2: So we're going to talk about cave syndrome. I don't know if anyone else has heard of this with uh, COVID having gone on in the past year or so. Coming up on a year and a half. That's crazy to think about. Um, but just a, a little blurb on it here. So after a year in isolation, many people who've developed an intimate understanding of what it means to socially isolate are afraid to return to their former lives, despite being fully vaccinated. There's even a name for their experience, the clinical sounding cave syndrome. Jacqueline Gallin, a professor of psycholo- psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Northwestern University says that adjusting to the new normal, whatever it may be, is going to take time. The pandemic-related changes created a lot of fear and anxiety because of the risk of illness and death, along with repercussions in many areas of life. She says that even though a person may be vaccinated, they still may find it difficult to let go of that fear because they're overestimating the risk and probability. Um, In addition, a recent study by the American Psychological Association reported that 49% of surveyed adults anticipated being uncomfortable about returning to in-person interactions when the pandemic ends when it ends it has not ended yet people it found that 48% of those who have received a covid vaccine said that they felt the same way
1: so aaron where where do you fall on this spectrum of feeling safe and comfortable with going out no mask all that stuff and and uh to i want to stay in my house for the rest of my life because i'm deathly afraid of everything that's going on where where do you stand on that gamut
2: I feel like I'm pretty dead in the middle. Um, So until I was vaccinated, definitely did not like being around people. Um, As of last Friday, we're two weeks out from our second shot. So we're, my fiance and I are fully vaccinated, um, which that actually eased eased my fears a lot. We went out to eat for the first time in over a year um, at an outdoor restaurant. (laughs) But um, so, you know, being outside, I feel pretty safe now that I'm vaccinated. I I don't feel pressured to wear a mask everywhere, especially with the new CDC guidance. Um, and knowing that I can't transmit it, the probability of me transmitting it to someone else, even if I had it, even if I'm vaccinated against it, is low to my understanding. Um, don't don't quote me, people. I'm just explaining my viewpoint. Quote Fauci. Quote
1: Fauci. He said so.
2: <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, I feel I feel pretty comfortable now, but I don't like going into grocery stores where I have the impression that there's a bunch of people that are unvaccinated. Like I don't like being inside it with people that are unmasked. That it makes me feel like there's still a chance, which is I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, so so I'm at this I'm at this weird juncture here between the two gamuts. I feel like I'm right in the middle where you are too, but I, for different reasons. So. Uh, You know, I am I am fully vaccinated. My wife is about, I don't know, a couple days from being fully vaccinated. She got her second shot on Saturday. It's uh, Pfizer. So it's only a week out. Right. So, um, you know, we're we're almost there. And myself personally, you know, I feel like I don't really necessarily have to wear a mask outdoors. I still do it to be polite if I'm passing somebody on the sidewalk or something. I do it for other people's peace of mind. It's not for me. Um, but you know, if I'm if I'm within like even 20 feet of somebody, I'll still mask up just to give that other person the peace of mind because I do understand that it's like it's this huge thing, right? So from my perspective, um, and from my understanding as well, you know, I I listened to an interview with Fauci where it's incredibly unlikely that you'll transmit something. So from my perspective, it's it's like I don't care to mask. And and right now I have like a massive peace of mind for myself, that I'll be okay. And for my wife, she'll be okay. But we also have a small child. And while it's incredibly unlikely that he'll get it, um, we've still seen heartbreaking videos of children getting it. And so we are still incredibly careful with going to places that are, um, or coming within contact to people who are not masking and exposing ourselves to situations that could be, um, high risk for him, right? So it's it's a weird uh, world right now because he's way too young to get it. They haven't done the testing on infants yet. So we're thinking that he might get it in the next couple years is the timeline. But so it, it's going to be this weird limbo for us to navigate um, while the pandemic is ending. And I say that in quotation marks for anyone who's just listening. The pandemic is ending. Um, I feel like there's um, a lot of opportunity for, things to go wrong if you don't uh you know kind of keep in consideration that there are people who cannot get vaccinated for legitimate reasons right like testing hasn't been conducted on children yet um and there are people who have adverse reactions to vaccines that's not an excuse for you to uh, use it as a fear-mongering thing and be anti-vax like i think you know vaccines are still um incredibly valuable and useful and um Anyway, that's that's kind of where I'm at on this whole spectrum. But I totally get what this article is saying here. This one's from um, Scientific American, and they are basically saying that those uh, the the changes that we've overcame in the last year have really altered the way that we view going out into public, and and kind of has shaped how we as a society now favor or not necessarily favor. There are people who definitely want to get out there. Um, but it, you know, there's this, there's subset of people who need to be, uh, or who are uncomfortable with going out to in-person interactions and, um, you know, to the point where, uh, what, 48% of people who receive the vaccine feel the same way. That's, that's an insane statistic to me.
2: Well, you know, my, my mom is high risk, um, and she is vaccinated, but, having that high risk factor and, you know, no vaccine is perfect, right? Um, But there's science that, that they can help. Um, So I think that small percent risk is, is in her mind a lot, just knowing that if she were to get it, that um, her chances of survival are less than like the average person. Right. Um, So I, I know that's really weighs heavy on her mind and it's made my the way my entire family dynamic interacts is kind of different because of that. Right. So I, um, during like before there was a vaccine and during kind of like heavy COVID um, Sean and I made decisions to like see our family. Right. But we, we quarantined for two weeks ahead of time, like all the interactions were outside, (laughs) like, um, and we literally, we would like have groceries delivered and not do anything for two weeks and stay and literally stay in our house until we saw that you know family member so um coming off of that and getting if you're somebody that really um made an effort to alter your life and like from our standpoint you know we just really didn't want to get anyone else sick that was kind of weighing on our our minds the most i think um because we we actually did end up with covid i don't know how um because we were pretty careful but you know, we were just so worried about um, other people and, and not wanting to negatively affect someone else's life for so long. Now it's kind of like, even just, um, I, I'm kind of almost hoping that masks become like a thing that some of the population reverts to if they're not feeling well, like, wear a mask into to work if you feel like you have the common cold, you know, I don't know. Um, it just seems polite. And I know that in some other cultures that happens. But I feel like a lot of us have just altered our way of life so long. And there's kind of these two extremes. Like it doesn't surprise me that this cave syndrome has come up and it kind of makes sense. Um, If you make such a big change in your life, you know, humans kind of are adverse to change. um, And so why wouldn't you just keep on that, that path? Um, I don't know. I feel like I definitely enjoy having less weekend plans and things too. It's, it's kind of a nice, change of pace in life almost
1: (laughs) yeah i think i think there's certain people who almost enjoyed when lockdown happened right where it's like oh yeah now i all these obligations that i had now i can just stay at home and not have to worry about going out or how i look at the office every day because now i'm at home um and doing video calls so i just need to dress from the torso up you know like i think There's a subset of people who enjoy that, and it's mostly introverts who don't really care to interact socially, um, you know, as as frequently as extroverts. And uh, I definitely considered myself in that, you know, there's that whole meme going around, right, where it's like, oh, what? what, This is this is uh, not normal behavior. It's like it's the SpongeBob meme. I don't anyway. It's (laughs) it's one of those ones. Um, But I think I think it goes to show that this is a this pandemic is going to have lasting effects on the way that we interact uh, with society. Um, And I think this cave syndrome is just one of those uh, aspects. And I want to keep focused on this cave syndrome, but I mean, there are a lot of other aspects of this that are going to um, really shape the way that we work and interact in the future, right? Like people can work from home now and it's been shown to be successful in some industries and, what does that mean? People relocate, right? You know, you, now, now you can work at the company that you work at and be in any state where the cost of living could be lower, and so we'll get like this big shakeup of demographics um, nationally, you know. And, but focusing on the cave syndrome part of it, it's also going to shape the way that we interact with others. And I think, uh, I think this fear and anxiety about going out and interacting with other people when it's almost a demand from society is going to be a really difficult thing to overcome for a lot of people uh, myself included like if if there's a way to do something virtually I will do it virtually right now like I said for um for the benefit of my son who do- is not protected you know once he is protected then I'm going to feel a lot better about the whole thing but for right now it feels very much like a okay I'm good my wife is good but like this is going to be um a weird couple years while this gets you know tested on on younger and younger children uh you know when is his age group coming up i don't know um so it kind of feels like still there's no end in sight and that's probably just overprotective papa over here like i don't know it's it's a it's a weird thing so like my, my anxiety stems from lack of protection for my son even though it's incredibly um you know incredibly uh not likely that he will get it. It's still just something that's like, I, I've seen what happens to children that get it and it's, it's horrifying. Um, so. I don't well, know. This is... <laughs> I
2: kind of wonder too. you know, school aged kids, this, this article specifically talks about Cape syndrome in adults. Right. Right. But we're coming upon, there's going to be a generation of kids who are at different developmental points where they were pretty much isolated for over a year. Um, so. I'm really interested in the effects that like this, this cave syndrome will have on an entire generation. Um, Cause we're, I mean, you know, Nick, like you're in my generation, we're already kind of maybe headed down the cave syndrome road to begin with. <laughs> we have all these virtual opportunities to like hang out with our friends. Um, I was just talking to my brother this past weekend about how um, I've made friends online for the first time because of the pandemic. Like I got really into dog Instagram Um, And I have people there that I would legit call my friends, like one of them just had twins. Um, I sent them a baby gift. I've never met these people in person. And um, we were kind of talking about how mind blowing that is, right? Um, And I wonder if, you know, if our generation is already embracing these virtual opportunities, and maybe this kind of cave syndrome lifestyle, where in person, you're with a, a couple people, and you can get still get this social interaction kind of elsewhere um what kind of effect is that going to have on you know this next generation that maybe it's it's not a choice and it's not because they have this new technology they want to check out and social media is newer and whatever but um it's just because it's literally like what they had to do while they were growing up and it's how they learned to socialize um uh it'll just be really interesting to see how that plays out if it if it has any effect because we just don't know yet
1: <laughs> yeah and i mean this is all really new right and and i think this is paired with the decision from the cdc to lift some of the or not lift but uh to recommend certain things right so as of this recording the cdc has said basically that you can wear a mat if you're vaccinated you can um, basically enjoy life as if the pandemic doesn't exist and i'm paraphrasing there but the 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 recommendation or they basically say that, you know, you're, you're unlikely to transmit to others. You're unlikely to get variants or or be infected with variants of the virus. um, And you're unlikely to uh, contract it. And even in the cases where you do contract it, you're unlikely to die. And so
2: I just got to jump in and caveat. So Nick and I are not immunologists, you know, we've read this stuff on our own. These are, these are our opinions on everything Um, We are not experts in the field. So take what we say with a grain of salt. And also every state has different guidelines right now and how they're dealing with the CDC guidance. So this is our thoughts and how we're living our personal lives, but we are not experts in this field. We're talking about how it relates to psychology. Just want to be clear.
1: (laughs) Thank you for that disclaimer, Erin. So, yeah, I think, um, yeah, so, so that's what the CDC says. I think a lot of people have pushed back and said, you know, well, that's not necessarily true everywhere. It might be the, National rate is at, you know, a point where it's okay, But in some um, communities where there's a lot of people of color, disadvantaged people who can't get vaccines as easily as other communities, it might not be as a smart of idea uh, to do that. Um, And I think a lot of people are worried that they can't trust other people to, you know, it's like, sure, I trust the guidance from the CDC, but I can't trust other people. And that's the issue. Um, to, you know, I can't trust them to, to be fully vaccinated. Like if you have one shot, is somebody going to jump off and say, um, yeah, I'm fully vaccinated, even though I have one shot or even, you know, anti vaxxer, someone who comes in and says, uh, oh, well, um, I'm okay to <laughs> go out because the CDC says if you're vaccinated, you have a mask. And so there's like all this, you know, are we going to incorporate a, pe- uh, vaccine passport, or some way to verify that you have a vaccine um, to enforce some of these situations. So I think there's um, still a lot of worry from people despite this new guidance. Um, and I think as it relates to cave syndrome, right, there's a couple things I want to make sure we talk about here before we move on is, one, what can we do to combat this cave syndrome? And two, um, how does this new guidance uh, impact the way people are thinking about it? And I think the fact that the guidance is fairly new uh, is a big deal for a lot of people feeling this way. And I think this is probably why a lot of people feel this way is because um, restrictions are lifting. And so it's like, do we go back to that life we were living um, or do we continue to protect ourselves and wear a mask uh, despite well, what the CDC says? And it's like your level of comfort, right?
2: Well, and you brought like you said re- three really interesting things right there, right? So you talked about trust um anxiety and then like people kind of continuing to do what they want to do right and those are three really um interesting topics and human factors especially when you start to talk about uis and all the other things you know why do people trust in the cdc or why don't they um and that's gonna have a huge effect on how cave syndrome comes into play um and then you know continuing on um you know, what motivates people to do things. And I, my dad said something interesting over the weekend that like, he's gonna continue to wear a mask even though it might be okay, because it's the right thing to do. And so, um, and that's, you know, that's his opinion. <laughs> but um, when you think about psychology and like what motivates people and, you know, do, it's, do they have this intrinsic need to be good? Um, do they have an intrinsic need to help others? Do they um, have an intrinsic need to, you know, uh, fight for their own family and and things and, and make sure they're, I don't want to say selfish, because that's not really right, but ensure that they are healthy. Um, so I think all those factors really come into play when you're considering, you know, will somebody have this cave syndrome or not? And then um, the fact that it, there's also like this anxiety that comes into play, right? Um So, you know, are you already prone to be an anxious person? Are you like me and you have an anxiety disorder? So then if something like this comes up and you are worried about the world and your own health and everything else, like, are you more prone to continue to stay at home? Um, It's just really fascinating. All these, these three things that I remember studying in school and that often come up as topics when we're trying to get people to accept a new UI um, reflect here as well, right? So how, how do we... (laughs) How do we continue to use what we know about those three subjects, anxiety, trust, and um, what motivates people to maybe help get messaging out there that it really is okay and help people with cave syndrome feel like they can live their lives again if they're vaccinated Um, and help people that maybe don't understand how serious some of this stuff is um, care about others. Like, How can we we play at those three um, psychological phenomena?
1: Yeah, I wanna I wanna touch briefly on what the article recommends for this, and I because I think it's absolute bullshit, and I wanna <laughs> I I wanna say it because it's it makes me frustrated because I, I like I want something actionable that people can take away from this, and it's it's like if it, it, this is what the article says, I'm quoting directly: if a person has symptoms of exhaustion, depression, or anxiety, uh, she advises measures that provide a sense of purpose in life, like meditation, faith, work. Prayer, playing, or listening to music. Okay, fine. Yes, all those things are helpful, but like that alone, I don't think is a sufficient answer. They do go on to say, you know, treatment for more extreme levels of anxiety uh, could require effective psychotherapy uh, with a mental health professional who can offer cognitive therapy or other treatments that gradually expose a person to stressful situation to resolve their fears. Um, and medication is also a, a, a solution. But I feel like, um, That's not a good enough solution to this problem. It's like, listen to music or, you know, find God again, or, you know, pray or meditate or something. It just doesn't seem like it's enough. It's kind of like, let's throw everything at the wall and see what sticks versus actionable feedback that people can take. Like, Hey, maybe to ease your anxieties, maybe follow the CDC and read what they say, you know, like actionable things that they can do. I think this list is bullshit. And, and I, I, It's a scientific American. I hate it. (laughs) Sorry.
2: It's such a a new thing though. It is. Yeah. They probably don't have like, we know the data. Exactly. Like preliminarily, they know those things will help. Right. And as somebody with an anxiety disorder um, that I've been, you know, diagnosed with since 2015, those things do help, especially in the short term. And so, you know, if you're, if this is a new syndrome for you and it's your first time really feeling like, clinical anxiety um you know maybe that will alleviate some of it or maybe that'll kind of you know solve it for some people mental health comes in colds or chronic conditions just like physical health does but um yeah I feel like they just need more data to have better solutions um because (laughs) and and maybe we'll see more data as this emerges as more of a prominent syndrome I, I feel like if 48% of people um, who've received the vaccine feel the same way that they're still not okay with leaving their house, um, you know, we might have to do a mass study to help introduce people to the world again.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I guess I guess I say it's bullshit because it's stated matter of factly, like this stuff will help. Um, And, and I think it does vary on person to person. I think there are much more actionable feedback, even from somebody who is not a mental health professional. Um, I'm a psychologist, not a mental health professional. And so like, even from my perspective, I feel like there are things that you can do. Like I said, like follow the CDC's uh, posts, Um, stay up to date with what the latest numbers are in your area, because that might help you feel reassured that maybe you're going to be okay. Um, Maybe there are, you know, the vaccination rates are high where you are. And that's something that you can go out once you have that information and feel better about the whole thing. And, um, you know, I'm not stating that matter of factly, I'm stating that as maybe this will help. And I think that's the way that's, that's the way they should have phrased this. Um, Also not everybody here in the United States or even globally has access to things like mental health professionals. So to, to state that as a solution also feels a little, um, Uh, off the mark to me, but I, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting problem that has come up because of this thing that it's one of those unintended side effects of uh, this global pandemic that maybe we didn't even think about when it first happened. Um, And it's, it's kind of crazy to think about, right? Like uh, post COVID world is, is weird and much different than we thought it was going to be. You know, we all thought life was going to go back to normal after two weeks, of lockdown. And now it's a year and a half later and um, weird psychological things are happening to us as <laughs> we go forward.
2: Well, and I think that this is an area of human factors that people often forget exist. you know, strategic messaging, understanding um, a local, national, global community, understanding how to get messaging out that um, reaches the, the majority or speaks to the majority. Um, you know, I feel like this cave syndrome is one area where, you know, you, you could really hire um, for like public health experts could also work with and hire human factors experts to really reconsider, you know, marketing on the, the science that, that's coming out um, both on the pandemic um, and on ways to alleviate the the outcomes of the continuous outcomes of the pandemic.
1: Yeah. Um, I I don't know I I uh, I don't know if I have any additional thoughts on this I I hate to leave it as like there's nothing we can do it's just we do need more data and maybe following some of the CDC's guidance and understanding how it affects you locally might help um, any other last thoughts on this Aaron before we move on
2: nope I don't think so.
1: All right. Well, thank you to our friends over at Scientific American for this story. And thank you to our patrons for choosing our new story this week. Um, We're going to take a quick break uh, and uh, we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human
0: Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us.
1: Hey, huge thank you, as always, to all of our patrons, especially our honorary Human Factors cast staff, Michelle Tripp. Patreons like you keep the show running, and thank you all so much for your continued support. If you do want to support the show, we have a couple ways that you can do that. Um, Like I said, there's Patreon. We have just added a couple extra... I don't know what the, their, their tears. I don't know. We have a show sponsor level now It's $300 a month. Um, we basically air your advertisements in place of that commercial and it's a way for you to get the word out. So if you're a human factors firm and you want to get uh, access to a variety of human factors professionals, that's one way you can do it and support the show doing it. Um, again, we try to keep these things ad free. So that's only one of those available. So only one, one show sponsor at a time. Um, anyway, uh, there's a couple other things that we're doing here. Um, we got a merch store if you want to support us that way. Uh, I am wearing our Human Factors Cast logo T-shirt with me right now. Uh, there's a couple fun, cool designs. You can find the link for that uh, all over the place. And, um, you know, the, the patrons like you are actually making the show better. Uh, I, I want to say, like, if you're watching this on stream or after it's been recorded, you'll notice that we have a couple upgrades. I said this in the pre-show tonight, but there's a now um, it, it might seem minor to folks watching, but we have a like motion background, which gives it a little bit more of a professional polish. Uh, we've got rid of the restream branding, and now there's um, a nice little, uh, uh, I don't know, it, it just looks more polished, I think, and, and we can do more fun things like actually air our commercials and um, air our intro on the streaming services without me having to share my screen to do it. And it's a lot less clunky. And uh, again, like that's because people like you are supporting the show. So thank you so much for all of you folks. All right, we're going to go ahead and switch gears and get into this next part of the show we call It Came From
0: It Came From
1: It Came From, yes, this is where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the internet is talking about, the the community, the human factors community is talking about. Um, Really, any topic is fair game as long as it Uh, As long as we have something to really talk about here on the show. So uh, this week we got a couple of Reddit posts. Um, I'm going to read these here and pass it over to you, Aaron, uh, once I read these and you'll give me an answer. So we're going to start with this first one here from uh, Jessica Perlman on the user experience subreddit. This is constantly feeling overwhelmed with work. Uh, I have been in the industry for a few years now, and I still find myself overwhelmed with complexity and not knowing what to do next. I don't have this problem with more bounded and constrained projects where the problem and the outcome is more or less clear, but I can't seem to graduate to the next level where I can comfortably tackle complex, vague, and interrelated problems, which comprises most of my projects. What are some strategies and tips that I can use to manage this feeling and get shit done? Aaron, how how do you get shit done?
2: (laughs) Well, um, so the first thing I would recommend to this person is like do you have a mentor in the field because if not you need one um I've I mentioned earlier in the pre-show I think that Elise, um who's been on the show a few times is one of my mentors and then I have a couple more people that I lean on at work um and like just kind of level setting with them and letting them know that you want to graduate and get to that level can sometimes ease a lot of um worry and anxiety you might have over this and just let you know that that's normal like you can't become an expert in your field in a couple years it takes time um you you don't know what you don't know and it's okay to keep learning um and like one of my more senior mentors um was just telling me the other day that like she's just finally getting to the point in her career that um she's starting to really feel like she she kind of knows what she's doing and she told me like Fake it till you make it. <laughs> just be confident and go for it. Um, and I think there's something to that, right? Um, I had a really tough project this week that I was working on, and um, I confessed to the person I was working with that, like, I'm, I'm sorry, I just, I'm not sure that I know what's going on. I'm trying my best. <laughs> like, here's what I came up with, and they were like, "We all feel that way. Um, you did a great job." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, okay. Um, I had no idea." So talking about it is the first step because we're just in one of those fields where problems are really complex. Um, and I, I mean, we're expected as human factors engineers and human factors professionals, um, applied cognitive scientists to learn about somebody else's career in like, you know, days, weeks, months um, and become experts in it and then explain it to other people to, to explain where the shortfalls are and, and what they need. And so, um, you know, I think it's normal to feel that way is my point. Nick? Yeah,
1: Yeah, I do. I think your first point about talking and communicating is is pretty key here. And I think a lot of this can stem from understanding the problem space, Um, you know, understanding what your role is on a project specifically. Uh, You know, you're talking, this this person here is talking about complex, vague, interrelated problems. Um, And to that, I would say, well, get Clarification on what the problem statement is what is it that you're trying to do ask questions until you know exactly what you need to do Um, ask questions of the people not only the users but ask questions of the people who are writing things like the requirements what do they have in mind for this thing ask ask uh, questions of the people who are uh, commissioning the work the clients right is it for are you in house with a large tech company and. You have a product manager that you can talk to and bounce ideas off of until you get some clarification, or are you working as a contractor for somebody else like that you can just ask and get clarification on what they're looking for? A lot of this communication um, can help narrow down the scope when something seems like it's a big problem to tackle, and it can be a huge problem to tackle. But if you break it down into chunks, uh, manageable chunks that are all interrelated, see what I did there. Um, then I think it becomes less vague and, uh, you know, then the complexity might not go away, but you'll also have a better idea of how to tackle it. Um, I think there's also the organization bit, right. Of, of, um, laying out the problem space of, of all the things that you need to do, or that needs to be done for a product and kind of, manage it through some task tracking software right you can use that as a tool or just write it all out on a whiteboard and cross it off. There are many ways that you can track work um, but I feel like complex problems need to be broken down into these buckets of work so that way you can tackle one chunk at a time and that way if you're tackling one chunk at a time it becomes less and less of a uh, sort of insurmountable task and becomes more of like chunks of work Right. This is what the whole agile framework is kind of based off of is is breaking down one big chunk of work into smaller chunks that you can do in um, like little bits and pieces. So that's that's kind of where I'm at with this. Um, I know projects can seem like really, really uh, intimidating when you come into them and they're they're just so big. Like, where do you start? Right. (laughs) I mean, I've definitely had that moment where I'm like. Okay. Well, this is going to be, a uh, uh, this is going to be something. <laughs> um, yeah. Any other thoughts on this one, Aaron, before we move on?
2: Um, and just, I don't know, find your inner confidence too. And I know that's easier said than done, but like, you know, <laughs> even if it doesn't feel like it, you're doing, you're probably doing good work. Um, and so just kind of find comfort in that and those small wins too. Like it's okay if you don't know everything.
1: Yeah. So to recap, uh, Ask questions, find a mentor, break things down into chunks and find your confidence. All right, we'll get into the next one here. Difference between experimental psych and human factors engineering. This one's from Random Actor 20 on the Human Factors subreddit. They go on to write, what's the difference between experimental psychology and human factors engineering? I'd imagine they're similar, but could a graduate of experimental psychology be able to find work as an engineer or would you need to go to school for that? Are the classes essentially the same besides less math for experimental psych graduates? I would imagine since it's not engineering. And if someone has any experience, how much math do you take in a human factors engineering program? Side note, I'm genuinely curious. Do any schools offer solid program? OK, we'll not answer that. Um, so uh, let's talk about um, <laughs> let's talk about the first half of this question here. Uh, experimental psych and human factors engineering. Aaron, what do you think?
2: Okay, so they're definitely different. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like experimental psychology really is about making new discoveries in psychology. It's more like classical psychology. Um, you know, <laughs> when you think about like old cartoons, rats in a cage kind of learnings. <laughs> um, Peterbox. Right human factors engineering is completely different and it's a term i get a little hypersensitive on um, because i i went through classical engineering training so i have a degree in in mechanical engineering and then i did a a master's in applied cognitive science and human factors so i feel like this person is perhaps asking they seem to understand there's a lot of math in engineering but um, i feel like this person is perhaps asking about being a human factors professional versus um, experimental psychology is maybe where they're kind of going with the question. Um, but human factors engineering in practice, what I really view it as, and feel like there's a strong difference between human factors professionals and human factors engineering is not really consistent with how it does in fact work in in industry. So, um, but human factors engineering to me, you have some sort of engineering background and you're really um, UI consumer product Um, similar things focused, um, and you're working on things that people will likely be using every day and making sure that you're not, you know, putting a push handle on a pull door kind of stuff. Whereas experimental psychology, you're, you know, looking for those new discoveries, um, you know, looking to turn theories to fact, um, that kind of avenue. Would you, would you agree, Nick?
1: I, so for me, I think of experimental psych as like, academia and i think of human factors engineering as industry and i think there's overlap there um especially if you're in like cognitive psychology i think that you could very easily navigate from a position in academia into um you know a, a human factors engineering role in uh industry where you know maybe there's the the your specialty of knowledge, your, your research area, you know, you could take that and apply it to uh, some human factors, engineering aspects. And that might be the gateway. Right. So I I don't, I I think of them as two separate things. I think there's overlap certainly with the psychology bit. I think the, the thing for me, um, and and I know people get hung up about the engineering term. Um, Like I I've definitely met people who are like, that's not engineering. They're not writing requirements uh the way they should be writing requirements um and that's i mean that's fair but like understand how to write requirements that's if that's part of your job then understand like i don't know i feel i feel like the human factors engineering piece is being able to apply a toolkit that you learn in school or on the job to a variety of different um, problem spaces and uh i think experimental psych is more along the lines of hey, we don't know about this area. Let's test something to figure out if that is indeed the case. And that's kind of the difference that I see between the two. It's like applying a toolkit towards something versus uh, seeing if something is, um, I don't know, feasible, if if that's the word for it, or see if it's true, right?
2: Yeah, I think we're both in agreement that there's, there's definitely differences. And we're also in agreement that, you know, you probably could (laughs) <laughs> with experimental psychology background, you probably could do human factors engineering. and with human factors engineering background, you probably could do experimental psychology. Um, but there are different strengths in the different degrees um, and uh, their question about math. If you go if you go about human factors engineering the way I did, you get the actual, like classical um, engineering degree first. Yeah, there's going to be a hell of a ton of math, Um, but I I can't I don't I don't think I can really speak to if you go classical psychology into um, or, you know, they're starting to come out with um, bachelor of science programs in human factors now, too. It's not just a master's only program. Um, So I have a hard time answering that question. Like if you get a bachelor's in human factors engineering, how that might differ from a bachelor's in psychology. Um, yeah, I can I can
1: speak to that a little bit. So, I mean, at least from my perspective, um, I was fortunate enough to have uh, professors that were very math focused in terms of like research methods and statistics and statistical analysis. And so from my perspective, I feel like there was enough there uh, to understand that. And then once I got into the human factors program, you know, we, we talked about things like Um, specific math equations when it comes to things like ergonomics, where you have the human body acting on forces or forces acting on the human body that uh, dramatically change the way a human can interact with a product machine interface, that type of thing. Um, And so that's, I think, where the most equation heavy thing is. Of course, there is a ton of math involved with something like uh, perception of color or even um you know distance bet- optimal distance between interfaces and that's more like human computer interaction you can certainly go that route um to find you know what the optimal distance between two displays are or that type of thing and you can get very metrics-y with that but i think just generally um if you're looking at the uh uh sort of human factors toolkit you know there's there's uh, a variety of methods that you can employ to interact with users. And um, I, I really struggle with this one because you could go down that route and you could work at a company that really wants to know the focal point of, you know, like what's the optimal, um, what's the optimal font size based on how far away the operator is sitting from the display. And that's a lot of math involved with that. Um, but you can also go, this looks good enough. I can see it. Are they going to be able to see it under these specific lighting conditions that they're in? I don't know, but that's something that you go out and test and you can do your research in those situations. And I'm speaking from experience here. I've had a project where I actually had to do that, right? There's some specific lighting uh, conditions. They were under a blue light. And so it's um, we had to take that into consideration with what font color and size we used on the screen. They're sitting a distance away from the computer. There's a lot of math involved in that um with developing like a style guide for that type of thing. Uh, but, you know, that's then once that math is done, then you just employ it um, in, in whatever interface that fits the bill for that specific application. So that's that's kind of where I'm at with that. Um, anything else to add to this, Aaron?
2: Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And I think I would just add, um all the time my one of my mentors always says like, you know, psychology is as much a science as it is an art. And so I think whichever field um, you go into, there's definitely art mixed with the science. You're not going to get away from math either
1: way. <laughs> yeah. you'll be all right. How about that? Um, all right, yeah. so we got one more here. Uh, this is, Is it normal to feel like you don't know anything? This is. From, this, question. <laughs> this is from uh, Sadity Gal. Sadity Gal on the user experience subreddit sorry about butchering your name uh i have a few interviews coming up in my first job or internship uh at first i was excited but now i feel like i'm not ready i feel like i'm a good junior uh good for a junior position especially compared to my peers but if i get hired at one of these places i'm scared i'm not going to know what to do or where to start i feel like when i graduated i got thrown off of a ledge and now i'm in free fall maybe i'm experiencing imposter syndrome and if i uh And if I am, it's terrifying. What if I get hired and I can't deliver? What if my work sucks? What if I can't give them what they need? I don't know how to run a workshop. I don't know how to do a lot of things. I'm used to school solo projects. I don't have the confidence. Any confidence in interviews I project is 100% a lie. I'm scared they'll hire me and find out. Aaron, have you, this is an imposter syndrome question. And uh, it's like how to overcome that. Have you experienced imposter syndrome? Every day
2: um okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> i feel like um is it normal to feel like you don't know anything needs to meet up with constantly feeling overwhelmed with ux work and like take them on as a mentor and then constantly feeling overwhelmed with ux work needs their own mentor I, I, we need to like love connect these two in the ux community <laughs> um
1: yeah. yeah uh imposter syndrome is a real thing um, it can be difficult to acclimate to that and what it means for you in a new position, especially if you're junior. Um, and you know, pe- just because you're junior doesn't mean you don't <laughs> doesn't mean imposter syndrome goes away. Uh, you know, even even years into your professional career, you can still experience that. Especially if you're working with a new company and they do things slightly different than a another company that you worked for, um, you can very easily step into a role and be like, okay, well, I'm way out of my element here. This is way different than I thought it was going to be and still experience imposter syndrome. I think for me, the thing that helped with imposter syndrome is uh, understanding that the place that hired you hired you for a reason, um, even if the confidence that you projected is 100% a lie. Uh, (laughs) You know, I think... They still understand that at some level um, you are qualified for that job. And I think everyone should kind of take that at face value. Like people are very selective with who they hire. Uh, I, I I can think of very few instances where somebody slipped through the cracks and was a bad hire. Um, and when they were, it was a really bad hire. Uh, but like, I, I mean, people do their due diligence on you. And you have to understand that you know they they understand what they're getting with somebody coming straight out of college they know that you don't have the years of experience that somebody else might have um and so imposter syndrome is something that you should experience almost i mean like if you don't experience it i almost feel like you have too much confidence it's like you should constantly be guessing whether or not the thing that you are doing is correct um or or i i wouldn't say guess you should constantly evaluate whether the thing that you're doing is correct um I, I don't know. Where Where are you at with all this, Aaron?
2: Um, Well, I'm, I'm just reflecting on their first question. Is it normal to feel like you don't know anything? Yeah, that's normal. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> but it's also normal and important to realize that, you know, you didn't need to be that hard on yourself. Um, everybody is new at some point. Um, everybody, you know, takes time to build their confidence. And like I said about this, constantly feeling overwhelmed with ux work um blurb you know like you don't become an expert in your field overnight and if somebody's expecting you to do that then like you know look for other employment but um <laughs> you know it's it's okay and i think a lot of us feel that way i feel that way i've been in i've been in the professional setting for 2 years and i still feel like i'm learning and there's more i can know and you know i wonder if jimmy joe sitting next to me is killing it more than I am like I think that's just kind of human especially um, it sounds like you did really well in school and you were really well at getting your work done on your own Um, you know that's kind of the way I was in school too and so um, I think if you're just kind of naturally already that way where you're like you know am I being the best I can be when you get into the real world and you're you're doing a job for the first time it's normal to continue to ask yourself am I being the best I can be and the answer is probably yes, most of the time, and that's okay.
1: All right. Any other closing thoughts on this one? I think imposter syndrome is a uh, a, a terrible disease that we need to eradicate, but that's just me. <laughs> have have uh, faith in yourself, right? You're doing the right thing and they hired you for a reason. That's yes. all right. Uh, all right. So let's go ahead and get into one more thing. Uh, this is self-explanatory. It's the opportunity we talk about one more thing. Uh, Aaron, what do you have for your one more thing?
2: So my one more thing is, um, so I'm planning a wedding right now. I, I mentioned earlier, since last time we talked, I've gotten engaged. And um, I'm not one of those girls that's been imagining it since I was like five. Um, so I I succumbed to the, the targeted Facebook ads of um, trying the Knot app. And I was like, not really expecting much kind of like, uh, you see this all over the place, whatever. And was really surprised at how user friendly it is. Um, like it was really nice. I ended up recommending it to a friend who's also getting married soon. I was like, wow.
1: (laughs) So what, what makes it user friendly? Is it just like, it it gives you step by step of like, Hey, these are things that you should think about for this thing. And
2: yeah. Um, so it has an entire place where you can, you can lay out your budget and it has suggested like, You can add or delete whatever category you want, but it also has suggested categories that people think about, like that they've got from statistics of people using this app or whatever, I assume. And then they also have a checklist of things you should be considering and when based on your estimated like date you're going to get married. So they lay out like how early you should be looking into hotels and your venue and all this other stuff. And it's really nice. Like it's just this really long checklist and you can look at all the things you've done and all the things that you have to do. And then they also have this um, really cool tool to build like a free website to, you know put all your information for your guests or whatever which I thought was weird and hokey at first but then I really like got into it just cause it was so easy to build um, and it looks nice. Uh, and I don't, you know, I don't like coding. Um, I know I said earlier I have an engineering background but like coding is not my thing. And so like, I literally, I built this whole website on this phone app and like, you can pull it up on your computer and it looks nice. And that just blew my mind. Like how, knowing how hard coding is and that they made it so easy that you can just like anybody having a wedding can make this little website. It's just pretty cool tool.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. I like, I I imagine, is it Let me ask you a question. Is it like where you put in certain parameters? Like I want 50 guests and my budget is this many dollars and I want it at this location. And does it come up with like, Oh, Hey, here's a venue that fits your budget and can accommodate this many guests. Is it like that? Yeah,
2: There's also a function like that. Yeah. Um, And it'll suggest everything like photographers, florists, venue, um, even officiants. It's like, and it, and it kind of like it targets the ads based on sort of where you are in your, um, checklist which is kind of cool like they it's just really a smart app and they've thought it through and as somebody that really thought it was going to be hokey and stupid I am impressed and they have they have convinced me that they are definitely worthwhile and if you're getting married you should check that app out not a sponsor
1: yeah well we'll we'll put a link down in the description below uh for me uh my one more thing is a fitness tracking app so I was actually out of so I got a couple things to talk about so I was actually out of town uh last week and, um, while I was out my, um, my Samsung galaxy active, whatever, whatever it was, it, it, it messed up on me. I think I went swimming and the screen started crapping out on me. So, um, like I didn't have a fitness tracker that I could reliably check out, you know, and, and that's really important to me because it's how I track, oh, you know, was I sitting on the couch all day or actually did I get up and start moving and, um, kind of track those types of things. And, uh, so for me, I, uh, I guess I got the Samsung one back in 2017, 2018. I've had it for a couple of years. I think I've had it for three years, so it's 2018. Before that I was exclusively Fitbit just because I wanted to keep it all in the same ecosystem and I was willing to like look elsewhere for a different uh, type of um, a different type of uh, I guess type of tracker. And uh, for me, the the Samsung uh, Galaxy was kind of the solution because it was able to track, like, blood pressure from your wrist, and that's a pretty big deal. So um, eventually that, that – um, what's the word I'm looking for? That feature never came to it, and so I was stuck with this app that I didn't really uh, – or this, this watch that wasn't really in my ecosystem, and it wasn't kind of uh, good for the thing that I wanted it for, and it didn't interact with my current ecosystem with Fitbit. And so, like, I had – all this automation going on behind the scenes to make sure that the tracker stuff came into Fitbit and made sure it was, it was a mess. Um, but my, my first thing is that I switched back to Fitbit. Um, I really happy I did. I think, um, there's some cool stuff going on with this, uh, smartwatch that a lot of it is the same as the other one, but there's a couple neat like bells and whistles that I really enjoy playing with. The second thing I want to talk about is I was out of town and I was at a hotel. Um, and so, uh, basically what I did was I was like, can I get this thing delivered to the hotel? And I looked at, you know, Amazon and they were like, oh, there's a couple lockers nearby and we can have it to you tomorrow. And I was like, oh, this is great. So I actually, you know, ordered it and it delivered to a locker in, you know, a place thousand miles away from home that I picked up and was able to get and set up like the next day. Um, And that's, that was pretty incredible to like, just walk in and have this new thing that, you know, I didn't have before. And, um, so lots of stuff going on, but I'm very happy that uh, the experience with setting up Fitbit—you know—remembered all my settings from years ago, and it just kind of pulled them back in. And it's like, hey, I know you've been gone for a while, but here's everything. Um, Nick, I gotta
2: so, know—is this one waterproof?
1: I think so. I think the other one was water resistant. Um, I just I thought I could go swimming with it. I don't know what happened. Maybe it was just old, uh, but the the it still works. I, like it still tracked everything. I just couldn't get to the screen. The one, the one thing I will say that like Samsung does right is that, um, you know, I can't, I can't quick add calories from this Fitbit, but I could from my other one, and that's that's really important to me. So I'm tracking how much I intake versus how much I, you know, burn off in a day, and that's that's important to me. Um, but so now I have to use the phone app, and it's a little clunky to like go out of my way. But who knows? Google just announced a whole slew of new updates to their. Uh, wear OS and they own Fitbit, so maybe it'll all work itself out. Have um, you
2: heard of the Wise brand, W I have, yeah. Sean, Sean just switched to that for his fitness tracking, and it was only like the watch was like 20 or 30 bucks, which is really cool. But, um, so far, pretty comparable to the other stuff. And we, yeah, you actually,
1: that. you actually turned me on to the Wise cam um oh, I? <laughs> a couple <of> years ago <laughs> so
2: i'm a big fan
1: <laughs> yeah yeah um so yes we're, we're familiar with the brand um but yeah i think that's gonna be it for one more thing and i think that's gonna be it for today everyone uh it, let us know what you guys think of the news story this week do you are you experiencing uh cave syndrome you know let us know uh, you can hang out with us on our Slack or Discord or get to us on any of our social channels. Uh, you can visit our official website. Sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple ways you can do that. One, you can leave us a five-star review on your podcast medium of choice and if it allows for reviews. If not, you can tell your friends about us. Uh, that really helps the show grow. Uh, or three, if you're financially able, consider supporting us on Patreon. It helps us do really cool things like this new uh, video thing that we have going on here it's really awesome um and as always links to all of our socials and our website can be found in the description of this episode i want to thank aaron richie for being on the show today where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about that beautiful beautiful view of that lake behind you
2: <laughs> um, you can find me on linkedin right now yep
1: <laughs> great as for me i've been your host nick rome you can find me streaming on twitch on tuesdays at 11 a.m pacific for office hours and across social media at nick thanks again for tuning into human factors cast Until next time, it depends. depends.
3: Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans, humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people, ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media and on your favourite podcast directory because it's more than just common sense.